Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The virus is spreading in all member states. And let me first express my sympathy for all those citizens who have been affected, and in particular, our sympathy for uh, Italy. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and this feels like the week the coronavirus crisis came to dominate everything. The European Parliament moved its session from Strasbourg to Brussels, only then to cut it short without any votes, and it pretty much shut its doors to the outside world. EU leaders had a coronavirus video conference on Tuesday, aiming to get a grip on the crisis, And the EU's third largest member, Italy, is in lockdown. There's very restricted movement throughout the entire country as it tries to stop the spread of the virus. So let's start by talking to Silvia Sciorilli-Borelli in Rome, who's unfortunately one of the millions of people impacted by this lockdown. So maybe, Silvia, just, just start by telling us how life has changed since the lockdown order came. In short, uh, it's a completely different life. Um, Rome, just like many other parts of Italy, has turned into a ghost town. Um, I have a toddler and we're stuck at home. Um, we're being advised against going to the playground. But literally, it's it's just completely different. Even going to the supermarket, you have to stand in a queue um, at a one meter distance from each other. And we're let in one at a time in big supermarkets with people actually checking that there's not more than one person inside the premise. And we're talking about large supermarkets, not small grocery shops. You wrote very powerfully for us, uh, Sylvia, this week about uh, a family occasion, which was you know, very different than it would normally have been uh, due to this lockdown and the coronavirus. Can you just describe that? Well, on Monday, when the prime minister went on television to announce this nationwide lockdown, we were celebrating my uncle's 70th birthday and we were all seated at a one meter distance from each other. We had literally spread out in a way that was very weird because it was making conversation difficult, to be honest. And there had been no hugging and kissing. Um, everyone is very, very careful in their exchanges with other people. So obviously that's very different socially and in your everyday life. And how are people reacting to this in terms of the politics of it all? Um, I mean, I'm, I guess it's unscientific, but, you know, what are what are people you talk to? Are people kind of accepting of these measures? Do they think that the government's on top of it? Uh, do they have anything to say about the EU in all of this? Or are people just very focused on their own daily lives? OK, so the straight answer is that the situation is very confusing I think most parents are um, supportive of the decision to close schools up until April 3rd. 
But in general, there's been lots of miscommunication, especially at the beginning of the outbreak, because government officials and politicians were undermining the significance of the outbreak, and they were suggesting everyone just carry on as usual. Um, even the Democratic Party secretary, Nicola Zingaretti, headed to Milan, where he had beer and aperitivo um, with a bunch of activists. And then um, he took to Facebook 10 days later to say that he had tested positive to coronavirus and he's now in self-isolation. So obviously, um, you know, you've had the governor of the Lombardy region um, who said this was just a little more than a seasonal influenza. And two days later, he's on Facebook with a face mask saying that one of his aides tested positive. So now he would um, quarantine himself. So it's been very, very confusing, even when the initial lockdown measures in Lombardy and the northern regions were announced. They were first leaked to the press on a Saturday night. And before the prime minister came out to speak in a public uh, press conference, it took six hours. And by that time, it was 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, and hundreds of people had fled Milan on crammed trains headed south. So the whole thing was very, very confusing. I think the government has understood that, which is why uh, Prime Minister Conte decided to go on television and address the nation. And I hope things will improve going forward. Mm. And how is it affecting you personally? How are you you're getting through it? You have a, a young toddler. Uh, you know, how does it affect uh, your life? And, and what kind of measures are you are you taking to try and kind of get through it all? Well, firstly, I've um, had to tell Stephen Brown that I'm only going to be available part time for the next couple of weeks because um, my daughter isn't in nursery, which she normally would be. So I have to look after her. Um, okay. During the that's day. our editor in chief, just for our just for our listeners who may not know him. So okay, the message <laughs> has been conveyed just in case they missed it first time. He's a regular listener. Uh, what, and tell, what else? Is, I, I thought is that, that was that was an obvious piece of information. That <laughs> um, is to us, but not to everyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's normally in nursery until 4 p.m. And then she has a babysitter who looks after her from 4 p.m. onwards. Um, so I'm now looking after her by myself. Um, I can't rely on my parents like many other people can't rely on their parents. Aside from my very specific situation with a disabled mother, um, everyone has been advised to not rely excessively on older people and grandparents because they face the biggest risk from coronavirus infections. Um, I don't have any social life at all because restaurants and cafes close at 6 p.m. So essentially we're all indoors in the evening and my husband doesn't live in Italy. Uh, he's in London and um, flights have been shut from uh, from London to Rome and he, he can't come. He normally comes during the weekends, but he can't do that because he'd have to quarantine himself upon returning for 14 days. But I mean, it's affecting everyone in different ways. I guess I'm you know, one of those lucky people that can be flexible with work, can afford childcare. And, you know, I, I, I sort of try to carry on as usual as much as possible, but it is definitely uh, life changing. So how are you spending your, your evenings? Are you doing uh, board games or something like that to keep yourself amused? Well, I, I can't even do board games with anyone because I'm alone and no one wants to see me because I'm still going around because I'm allowed to. And obviously I'm like reporting and I'm doing stuff. 
But also um, going to see friends for social reasons is against the rules. You can only go out if you're sick or if you have to go to work. So if they stop you in the evening going to visit a friend, you'll be fined. So are they doing spot checks to make sure that everybody's following the rules? Yeah, yeah, they are. There's a bunch of police around. Like I've had to show my press card. And Sole 24 Ore was reporting that if you're out with flu-like symptoms, you can be uh, charged with attempted murder. Seems extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Sylvia, well, hang in there. And we hope to see you here in Brussels uh, before too long. And in the meantime, maybe we'll, we'll check in with you again just to, just to check you're, you're doing okay. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Sylvia Shirili Borelli in Rome sharing her first-hand impressions of life under lockdown. Now, let's get to our podcast panel. Hi to Remontaz in Paris. Bonjour. Hi to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Guten Tag. And to Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. So I guess we have to continue the conversation on uh, coronavirus and we'll use that also to um, talk about other issues, which, I mean, everything is associated with coronavirus now. And we should say we're recording Wednesday evening. It's a fast moving story. So some developments may have changed by the time you hear this. But hopefully the themes, (laughs) including, that is also a possibility, ever ever the cheerful voice. I enjoyed Reem's face when you said that. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, some people might wish it in my case. uh, Don't write. In. I don't know about you, but I've survived wars. I'm going to survive coronavirus. That's my yeah. plan. And Karnichnik, hopefully. <laughs> um, so maybe let's just start with the, the European response. We saw the EU leaders hold a, a video conference this week to try and, and get a grip in the face of, of some criticism that they haven't been on top of this crisis. Um, a particular message from Italy, I think, feeling a lack of solidarity in the midst of, of this national crisis for them. Matt, what do you make of it? You know, are people's expectations of the EU unrealistic? And how much does it remind you of of previous crises that they've faced in recent years? Well, I think people's expectations might be realistic to a degree because the EU as well tries to project this image of itself as having these powers and these abilities that at the end of the day, it really doesn't have. That said, it does feel in this case a little bit like the EU, especially the leaders of the EU, could have been out there a little bit more warning of the dangers of the virus, really kind of raising public awareness about it in a way that they failed to do. Instead, there was a lot of discussion about the refugee problems on the Greek-Turkish border, what's happening in Idlib, obviously very important, but it seems looking back as as though this coronavirus issue got a little bit swept under the rug. And it wasn't until the weekend that people, I think, really began to appreciate the gravity of what was going on, and especially on Monday with the market crash or whatever you want to call it. And even then, we saw uh, Ursula von der Leyen coming out and saying very little about it, preferring to stick to her talking points um, right, on know, 100 on, on days Monday. in office, yeah, 100 days. Right. That was the, the press conference was 100 days in office. You know, she was obviously asked about it, but her initial talking points were more on that and more again on the on the migration crisis, which does kind of give the impression sometimes, I think, as often happens, that people are, you know, in quotes, fighting the last war. They're looking back to the previous crisis instead of realising they've got a brand new one, which is different in nature right in front of them. Uh, Reem, France faces a, a very um, immediate 
question over over the coronavirus, uh, which is whether to go ahead with uh, the local elections, which are due on Sunday, the first round anyway. Um, is there any talk of, of postponing them? Well, there are certainly a lot of questions being asked about whether, one, the election should be postponed, and by some, why the election hasn't been postponed yet. Uh, and the answer we're getting from the government, from the Elysee, is that let's not blow things out of proportion. Uh, you know, people need to remain calm. We need to stay, you know, keep the response proportional. We need to continue reacting and adjusting as this evolves. Uh, and when I've asked this question to uh, French officials, I have to say the, their answers have been quite curt and quite terse. Uh, they seem to be very annoyed by even uh, bringing up that kind of question. And their immediate response is, in general, and, and, and in essence, it's to say, basically, if they were to postpone the election, it would send a very panicked message, uh, because it's it's a very unusual thing to do in a European democracy. And what they're really focusing on right now is to reassure everyone. Right. I guess that's the balance that uh, people are trying to strike be between not kind of triggering panic, but at the same time taking the necessary measures. And I mean, I have to say, even though, you know, it's our job to come on here and we, we will comment and analyse politicians. I mean, these are not easy decisions. I would not like to be trying to, to manage this. But but I do wonder if that kind of idea of, you know, we mustn't panic or, as I was saying a little bit earlier, this idea, you know, keep calm and carry on uh, may be quite good in terms of a psychological message, particularly if you're facing an external threat like terrorism or war. But perhaps if it's a virus which is not really impressed by your psychological response, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work so well. Um, Annabel, what about uh, the UK? Because you've had the the budget today, which is a you know big set piece event in the UK political calendar. Again, in the shadow of coronavirus, I mean, how much has it has it dominated uh, the budget and the measures that were announced? Yeah, it completely dominated the budget. Um, so the, the big headline from the budget was thirty billion pounds of um, support, um, which the Chancellor claimed was sort of one of the biggest packages we've seen worldwide. And in the last two days, I mean, I, th I think Boris Johnson's been praised for his handling of the crisis. Um, he keeps doing these press conferences flanked by the experts. And it's only really in the last couple of days that people have started to say, are we doing enough? And it, I think it was Italy that sparked that. That's been the sort of a big moment in the UK conversation. But I mean, he's very much keeping the the, the don't panic mode and basically cite, citing experts you know everything he says every every question that asked that is asked is well public health england is telling us to do this so we're going to carry on doing what they tell us what about the shaking of the hands though he said that he'll continue to shake people's hands which seems to be something that most medical experts would not recommend uh, given the situation yeah, well, he has he has been criticised for that. I think he might have stopped shaking hands now. OK, well, Matt, I don't know if you've seen that your uh, compatriot, the Austrian commissioner, uh, Johannes Hahn, thinks he's got a way around the, the handshake. He's got a thing called the handshake, which seems ah. to involve kind of gripping people rather than shaking their hands, which I'm not <laughs> sure medical experts would uh, endorse either. Um, what about Germany? The response there, I mean, one of the peculiarities or the... The characteristics of Germany is the, is the federal system, which means, you know, different lender can do their own thing. How much of an issue is that? Well, it's been a big issue over the last 24 hours as the entire situation seems to have exploded into the public consciousness. 
And I think it also really illustrates the muddled response in general, not just at the European level, but also at the national level. And here you have the German health minister, Jens Spahn, telling people that they should avoid gatherings of more than a thousand people. The the reality is, is that he doesn't have the power to do that. He can only use sort of the, the power of persuasion because of Germany's decentralized system. Right. And uh, Chancellor Merkel came out today and said she thought that between 60 and 70 percent of the German population would end up uh, getting coronavirus in some form. Reem, we should touch on the local elections apart from coronavirus. Um, you know, if you can give us your, your potted summary, first of all, is coronavirus going to affect the result turnout or particular parties in any particular way? And, and you know, what are you looking for? What we, what should we be looking out for when the results come in on Sunday? So the latest poll shows that 25% of the French say that they're not going to participate in uh, the election on uh, account of coronavirus. And so we, we are expecting slightly lower uh, participation. And there's a real uh, fear that the cluster of people who are going to participate less more than others is seniors, which can affect actually in particular incumbent uh, mayors who tend to be more popular among among senior uh, voters. So that's something, you know, that's one trend people are looking out for. Uh, there's a bunch of other things that people are looking for. Obviously, the Paris contest is one that is going to be very uh, closely watched because, A, it's too close to call right now, and it's uh, a traditional contest between uh, the Socialist Party and the Conservative Les Républicains. Uh, but beyond that, you see that Emmanuel Macron's party, La République En Marche, is really having a very hard time uh, finding a place, at least one big city to uh, to win. Their best bet is Lyon, but in Lyon, they're actually having a really big challenge coming from the Greens, um, which is the other thing people are looking out for. Okay. All right. We'll keep an eye out for that and come back uh, and look at the results next week. Um, Annabelle, let's come back to you and uh, focus in on an interview that you did uh, during the week with Tom Tugendhat. So, I mean, really just for for listeners who may not know who he is, uh, tell us a bit about him. Interesting guy with an interesting uh, background and and tell us why you thought it'd be interesting to talk to him. Yeah, that's right. He's the um, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in the UK Parliament. And he's a very interesting character in Westminster politics. Uh, before the EU referendum, he was really a kind of rising star of the David Cameron era. Um, I remember people used to come back from lunch with him and tip him as the next prime minister because he's got a, a great backstory. He's a former soldier, served in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's worked for the Foreign Office. He speaks Arabic. But in the current regime, post-referendum, he backed Remain. Um, his his face doesn't really fit. He's been quite critical of Boris Johnson in the past. He used to come up against Boris Johnson when Boris Johnson was Foreign Secretary and he was the chairman of the, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So he, he's an interesting character, particularly in this current parliament with the 80-strong majority that Boris Johnson has. For us journalists, for Westminster watchers, it's going to be very interesting where the opposition to um, the government comes from. And the parliamentary committees are going to be really important. I think people really are looking to see what they do in terms of being critical of the government and holding the government to account, because that's going to be very hard in the House of Commons with, with so many sort of loyal Conservative MPs. OK, and before we hear the first clip, just set the scene for us. Where did the conversation take place? Um, so, so I met him in his parliamentary office and um, 
he arrived with a, a pot of tea. So um, we, we conducted our chat, covered all sorts of issues, which you'll, you'll hear shortly over a pot of tea overlooking Parliament Square. Sounds very civilised. Uh, let's hear the first of those uh, clips now uh, where he talks about the idea that we've talked about a lot in this podcast, uh, the desire of Europe to, pil- to play uh, a greater role on the world stage. Let's hear a bit of what he had to say about that. Well, I think we want uh, European countries to be thinking more about their responsibilities. And here I agree with uh, people like President Trump, who call on many of our NATO partners to uh, you know, <laughs> meet their commitments and, 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 uh, and pay their own share of defence. Because you know, the free rider problem that some people speak about, I think that's a bit unfair because I think many countries in the European, uh, on the European continent contribute a lot more than simply um, the obvious in defence spending, as it were. But, you know, the issue stands that many European countries could do more in the international stage, whether that's uh, in defence or, you know, like the UK, uh, in foreign aid. Seem to be what's interesting, Annabelle, is even though he's obviously a Europhile, he's kind of keen to show he's not uh, super Europhile, right? He's not uh, uncritical of of the EU as an organisation and some of its member states. Yeah, that's right. You find that with a lot of Conservative MPs, even on the Remain side. Interestingly, he talks about uh, about both Germany and about about France. Do you want to set up uh, what he had to say uh, about Germany, which I think will be of interest to Matt? I asked him about the uh, CDU leadership contest and um, you'll be interested, Matt, to hear that he was um, backing Norbert Rutgen. I'm completely biased because I'm, uh, I'm uh, Norbert Rutgen, who uh, was my opposite number, or is my opposite number, sorry, who chairs the German Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, I think is a fantastic individual and is, uh, is absolutely brilliant. So I'm, I'm very supportive of him. I'm also a friend of one of the other candidates in Jens Spahn, so I, I can't be too biased. But I'm, I'm very pleased to see both of them making their voices heard. And, you know, Norbert has demonstrated time and again that uh, German perspectives on foreign affairs can be very closely aligned to our own. You know, he has spoken out uh, regularly against uh, Russian interference in Eastern Europe, for example, he's spoken out against Nord Stream 2. He's spoken out against many areas where I think m- many British people would agree with him, and certainly many, uh, many of, in his sister party, the Conservative Party, would agree with him. But he's also spoken out. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he regrets, and he's made it pretty clear he regrets Britain leaving the European Union, but is now looking for a constructive relationship. And I think that's, you know, I think that's at the heart of what we need to be seeing these talks, these next, this next step of talks as being about, we need to really think hard about how do we build up a partnership together. And so having, you know, people in um, in the Gunsland like uh, Norbert would be fantastic. But then, of course, I don't get a vote in that. So I'll stop there. Matt, what do you reckon? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's very interesting because it does show that Rutgen represents this strain of German conservatism, which is very traditional. It's very sceptical of Russia. He is opposed... Um, Nord Stream uh, 2 and has been really at the forefront of the opposition in Germany to Huawei's um, designs on uh, 5G infrastructure in the country. And un- unfortunately, I think for people who share his views in the UK and elsewhere, he he is does not represent necessarily a majority even of his own party because it is the the, the CDU and and Merkel in particular who has really stood behind the Nord Stream uh, two project for example and has taken a much uh, softer line at least in terms of the rhetoric 
uh, towards towards Russia than um, than I think uh, Rutkin would. But I, I I do think it also just shows that there is still a very Anglophile element in Germany, is particularly in the um, center right, and and that is something you know that could prove very useful to to the UK. Okay, well let's get back to Tom Tugendhat. Annabelle, I think you've got uh, another clip to play in here, which may be of particular interest to to Reem because he's, he has quite strong views on Syria, right? Yeah, that's right. He's been very critical about the lack of action on Syria. One of the first things I did when I was elected to Parliament. I wrote a paper with uh, Joe Cox, who was sadly murdered uh, a few months before it was published, uh, on the cost of doing nothing. And, and, and we wrote the paper because so much of our national life has been dominated by um, our actions in Iraq in 2003 that we've forgotten that actually there is a cost of inaction too. And Syria sadly spells out that cost incredibly starkly. You know, the number of dead, the number of displaced, the number of injured, the number of uh, families and, and, and uh, torn apart. I mean, it's heartbreaking to watch, uh, and yet that's that's all we're doing. And so, yeah, you're right. I have been extremely critical of it because I think this failure to act, this failure of the international community to recognise that we too have responsibilities, means that we have seen a country desert, descend into the most brutal carnage that any country has suffered for years and years. And we're standing aside, largely, while Iran, Russia and others uh, treat the Syrian people uh, simply as the most brutal form of pawns in a chess game uh, that we've ever seen. But that is the reality, and and too few have spoken out about it. In fact, here I pay tribute, huge tribute, to um, my friend Norbert Röttgen again, the chair of the German Foreign Affairs Committee, who has been extremely vocal and extremely clear on the responsibilities we have. But, you know, part of this responsibility is to recognise that, you know, Turkey as a fellow NATO country um, needs support in order to do what it's doing in looking after literally millions of Syrian uh, refugees. But it also needs support to make sure that it can uh, defend those who are now uh, in the pocket of Idlib, uh, where they uh, are being attacked so frequently. Rather sadly, in the last few days, we've seen that the... um, Uh, Russian attack on 30 Turkish troops, killing uh, a direct attack on a NATO ally, Um, has seen the Turks impose a no-fly zone over Idlib, and amazingly, it's worked. Uh, It's almost as though we didn't know that these things could work. Well, many of us have been talking about this for a long time, and it shows us that that decision in 2013 to play politics with people's lives here in the UK Parliament is one that has cost many, many, many lives indeed. Uh, He's so right to talk about the cost of inaction and the cost of non-intervention, because ever since the Iraq war in 2003, uh, the, the discourse in the West has been dominated by how interventions are wrong, lead to unintended consequences, uh, only make matters worse. But clearly, we're not having the conversation about what inaction actually leads to. And perhaps one of the things that he didn't say that we should point out is that the inaction of the West from 2011 to 2015, so let's let's not forget that was four years of the war predating ISIS and predating the Russian intervention. So for four years, the West just let 
Syria, sort of the Syrian theater, uh, left it kind of um, uh, up for grabs. And then Russia filled that void and has been able to use it as a way to project uh, its power in a way that it hasn't actually in many, many, many years. So that's that's one thing that we now have to contend with, of course, in addition to the human tragedy uh, and the, the countless deaths. What he says about Turkey is extremely interesting because it is almost the polar opposite of what we're hearing in France. Uh, the UK is clearly striking a much more positive, much more conciliatory tone uh, with Turkey. And if I may, one last point, this is something that is really lost in the conversation today in Syria. Uh, the EU is talking about sending humanitarian aid and saying that, yes, it's the tragedy of the 21st century, but all they can do is send humanitarian aid, missing the point that the humanitarian disaster that we're seeing is actually part of the objectives of the Russian and Assad strategy. This is not an unintended consequence of what they're doing. It's one of their objectives. The fewer there are Syrians who are opposed to Assad that remain within Syria's borders, the happier Assad and the Russians are. Yeah, I guess I would also say I, th- I don't know. Um, I don't know of any country actually that has agonized might be too strong a word or certainly agonized after the fact about Iraq more than the UK. It just became such an issue, uh, became so tied to Tony Blair, you know, within the labor movement, it remains super controversial to this day. And, 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 and so when he points to that as a kind of real kind of turning point in, in the UK, I mean, I think he's indisputably right. Annabelle, anything else that struck you from the conversation? I, mean, I listened to it, uh, you know, he also talks about Ireland, he talks about France. I mean, did you see a kind of overarching vision of, of how he'd like to try and nudge British foreign policy in this kind of post-Brexit era? Well, we, we spoke about Ireland and I think I think we're going to hear a clip in a minute. I think that's a very interesting sort of facet of UK foreign policy. We've never really thought about our bilateral relationship with Ireland in, in the same way that that we have since Brexit. Look, I think the relationship between London and Dublin is going to be one of the defining uh, factors of my uh, political career, however long or short that may be. Uh, and the first trip that we did uh, when I took the, president, the chairmanship of the um, Foreign Affairs Committee in uh, 2017 was to Dublin, just to underline the fact that our nearest and indeed our only really totally non-discretionary foreign relationship is with the Republic of Ireland. When I think, or when a lot of people think about UK foreign policy, I don't think we think about the Republic of Ireland. It's kind of almost sits in a separate box. And as long as we were both EU members as well, you know, I don't think it would really be considered foreign policy, but or or not in the same way. But now you have this situation where also Britain is is looking. First of all, that's the the only country Britain has a land border with, and secondly, Britain's looking for allies right inside the EU. And even though that relationship with Ireland can be tense. In a sense, they have a lot more in common uh, than, you know, with a lot of other EU countries. Yeah, and we're so tied economically that it's it's not in our interest, in either of our interests, to have friction there. But this whole Brexit issue and, and the Northern Ireland Protocol is going to, you know, dominate Brexit talks again in the coming months. And there's going to be sort of touchy times ahead. I agree, but, but I, I am actually just struck by... Uh, the idea of him saying that as as the most important relationship that um, really struck me too. I have to say, yeah, because you would normally think about the U.S., right? Right. Or you know, well, especially also just given the history 
between yeah. Ireland and, and, and the UK. And quite frankly, now that the UK needs something from Ireland, all of a sudden they're the most important, important relationship. Uh, I don't think many such of a, my uh, Irish cynic. friends would, uh, would agree with that assessment, <laughs> but, uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a bold statement, nonetheless. Well, it just it shows how times have changed. Let's uh, let's put it that way. Annabelle, thanks very much for bringing us that interview. And um, Reem, Matt, Annabelle, thanks very much. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to write a review of the podcast or click some stars and to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. We always like to hear from you at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.